Chapter 3. Before having fun up there. Screenwriting class, directing vibes, and meeting Jeff Torelli. Why don't you make stuff like this anymore? Because I'm not 18. Making Sexually Frank was, and perhaps still is, the most rewarding artistic endeavor of my life. The pre-production was a little horrifying. I was working with first-time cinematographers, three of the five primary cast were non-actors, two of whom wanted nothing to do with the front of a camera, and the film had some controversial socio-political statements. But ultimately, with the exception of a few stuffy film professors, the film was well-received, beyond my expectations. For a movie with my name in the title, it was the most collaborative, relaxed, and exciting group effort I had been involved with to date. It was something of a renaissance for me, as I was working out why I make films and what the future of my non-Los Angeles-based film career was going to look like. Among the energetic and enthusiastic crew, a fun but inexpensive good time, growing interest from the local film community to work with me, and ultimately a great film, I felt I had found a fulfilling creative life that I could sustain indefinitely. And with excited cast, crew, and volunteers, I started to hear a lot of, hey, next time you make a movie, let me know, I'll do whatever to help. It seemed ridiculous to not continue producing content, and quickly. But I only have so many scripts in me. So I began to fantasize about expanding our Red Cow Entertainment film brand to more filmmakers. Have a script you want to direct, but you need camera, sound, and actors? Hey, we got those. I wanted to approve of the content before slapping my fat cow on it, but the concept was exhilarating. Enough Frankie Frayne vanity projects already. Let's all just make a bunch of art, as much as we can fit into a reasonable lifetime. Rewind for a moment to the fall of 2009. I had enrolled in my first semester of an MFA film program. I knew that I was three years off from presenting my MFA thesis project, but I knew that project was going to be sexually frank. And I had already written the script. I was a year away from shooting. It was going to be a trick to stretch the production out for three years. One of my classes was a short screenplay class. By this point, I had taken three or four screenwriting courses in undergrad, so I wasn't into it. Most of the scripts in the class were unreadable. Seriously, I would expect anyone who's ever had anything slightly interesting to happen to them to write better scripts than this. Uninspired, boring dreck, written by people spending exorbitant tuition in an effort to establish their careers as storytellers. Maybe their inexperience was the problem. Regardless, the melodramatic, dry scripts exercised my inner adolescent as I started to write obscene, absurdist comedies just to get a reaction. I was working at the school full-time, so I wasn't paying tuition, and I felt invincible. I went home and wrote a script that I knew bordered on inappropriate for an academic setting, but I didn't think it was going to cause any genuine offense. Still, the screenwriting professor emailed me and asked that I speak to him during his office hours. You can't read this in class. I'm going to give the class the option to read it and give you notes, but you can't read this in class. So now, between rebelling against the class and being lazy, I probably looked like a dangerous and freakish individual. I ended up writing some other benign script and got through the remainder of the class. Jeff Torelli was in that class. He didn't write Drek. He opted to write a longer form short, 30 to 40 pages, called You Guys Really Looked Like You Were Having Fun Up There, about an embittered and slightly aged musician who has a lousy food service job, but does it to afford himself the time to pursue his music. It had an offbeat but cool ending, where he turns away from starting a career as an investment planner to continue playing gigs. He chooses his unfulfilling low-income life. But there's no movie contrivance. He doesn't get signed by a record label or win a big music contest or some such nonsense. Unlike me, Jeff was clearly working something out artistically. It was clear, from the writing alone, that Jeff was a musician. About eight years my elder, he had been faced with the art versus commerce question even more than I had, and was trying to express a fairly enlightened and complex statement about it. That script took delight in breaking a big screenwriting rule. 
Overly described action lines and settings in your screenplay are typically omitted, unless the writer is also the director, as those things are for a director to interpret. Additionally, even good screenplays can be tiresome to read if they're bogged down with over-explanation. When lots of description is necessary, screenwriters tend to break the paragraph so that no action takes more than three lines. Jeff blatantly ignored this rule. The settings and world of his main character were described in wonderful, beautiful, often disgusting detail. Here's an example from the original short. Mark pays the doorman and crosses into a narrow room with a long bar. The clientele is a mix of towny drinkers and the people here to see the bands. The two groups don't interact. There are tables along the walls where people eat cheeseburgers and other bar foods. There is a room further down at the end of the bar. Instruments tune and drums crash. Mark goes to the bar and nods to the bartender. She's middle-aged with too much makeup. Her skin is like leather and there is a permanently unamused look on her face. She has leathery skin and sports an ill-fitting low-cut shirt. It's cramped with dirty black and white tiles on the walls, a low ceiling with exposed pipes and a worn wood floor. There's a small crowd that mills about. They drink and gossip. There's a small stage in the back of the room six inches off the floor. Four men in their early 20s stand on the stage where they tune their instruments and adjust amps. The drummer sets up his kit. That's not even it for that scene. There are several more paragraphs like these. Our classmates and professor mustered few notes for Jeff beyond, cut down the descriptions, they're too long. I loved them. Here's why. It showed that he was highly observational, and knew how to articulate those observations into writing. In my book, that equals intelligent. It communicates that the details matter to the story. That authenticity of the world is key in the audience believing his arc. It was visceral. I was there, in the story, with the character. And aside from Jeff Torelli. I write scripts in an amazingly obnoxious fashion on my own. Nine times out of ten, I give people something I've written and they think I'm a pompous jerk who wants to dictate an entire movie from the screenplay. I understand that kind of overly wordy writing I do in terms of description is not correct for any kind of professional. Thankfully, I am not a professional, though. The descriptions get me in the correct frame of mind. I'm envisioning the scene as I write it. Details matter, and while on the set of a movie with a bigger budget, these details are often left up to an art director, who then gets some okays from the director, if he, she is the type who likes that kind of minutia. For me, I'm just trying to get into the mood. I told Frankie over and over again that the descriptions weren't meant to dictate how he set up shots, or even what he put in them. They're more about getting a feeling across to better facilitate writer and director getting on the same page, since we are going to work so closely together on this. Also, I originally wrote this short because every time I saw the street-level rock musician in films or on TV, I sort of cringed. Little details always bothered me. The punk bands playing out of inappropriate gear, the focus on fashion and beauty, the complete absence of what it's actually like to not be able to pay the bills, or come in late for a work shift, and to have grueling, unproductive rehearsals. These were the kinds of things I wanted to write since I didn't see them much. My script is going to be filled with the little details I thought would make it more authentic to the world I was coming from. I was afforded this luxury because Frankie got what I was trying to do and didn't assume I was just trying to take over the visuals. And then I found out a number of the locations took place in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I grew up in the next town over from New Bedford. It's a complicated little city slash town. New Bedford was, at one time, the whaling capital of the world, responsible for an influx of, mostly Portuguese, fishermen to leave its ports, kill as many whales as they could across three to five per year outings, and return with burnable blubber and hopefully some edible meats. This book called Moby Dick took place out of New Bedford. There's a district with a whaling museum and nicely kept streets and awesome historical buildings. Off and on, there has even been a good deal of art, like music bars, precisely as Jeff described, cool hometown video stores, and vintage shops. 
But outside the historical district, New Bedford can be a crime-ridden disaster. Jeff went to UMass Dartmouth and lived in New Bedford for a short period. He described it to me as squalor. I left that class with the very fleeting sense that this music-as-art metaphor, New Bedford-based, passionately-described script, might be something I could direct. That was a new and weird notion for me. Later that year, I would have directed my third feature film, but because I wore so many hats on all my films, I never really thought of myself as a director. Specifically, I thought of myself more as a maker. I make movies. But what do I bring to them as the director? I didn't really consider that, but Jeff's script challenged me, and I started to consider it more carefully. Even if I was prepared to approach him about making that movie, and I wasn't, I still had to shoot Sexually Frank, and I was not convinced his script would be my next film, I doubted he would want to share a story as personal and personalized. I thought it would probably end up being his thesis or something. So across that next year or two, whenever I was asked if I would ever direct someone else's writing, I mentioned Jeff's script as an example of the kind of script I might direct. The following semester, still pre-Sexually Frank, I took a business of film class in which we were asked to pitch a story to the class. I did Sexually Frank, and once again, the pitch made it seem far weirder than it really was. But I was comforted when another student, Ingrid, stood up and pitched a film called Vibes. She delivered the pitch the same way she speaks, with a sort of comic non-commitment. But what I heard in the pitch was a raunchy comedy written by a woman and starring women. I thought it would be really cool of her to make the movie in the program, but she was new to narrative filmmaking, and the project would require some ambition. Much like Jeff's script, I filed this away as, wouldn't it be cool if we could help her get that movie made? I didn't really give it more thought than that. At some point during this time, I heard through the grapevine that Jeff's thesis was not going to be you guys, but rather a documentary about Lloyd Kaufman, president of Troma. Anyone who knows me knows that my film education was steeped in the Troma School of Filmmaking. This was now the third or fourth of several odd and significant coincidences that Jeff and I shared. Jump forward to 2011. Sexually Frank is in the can, and I have a year of MFA left to complete. What am I going to work on? I can't seriously just keep showing slightly adjusted cuts of the same movie, right? Eventually, I'll be exposed for the lazy hack I really am. Jeff was in my portfolio slash workshop class, where we were encouraged to bring in anything we were working on to share with the class. He was an engaged and interesting voice, and often group conversations would devolve into him and me talking to each other across the room. Then he asked to see Sexually Frank, and I nervously sent him a link. These were his thoughts. I'm a total nerd like you. Just thought I'd start off with that line, because in a movie of things that I just really identified with, that one was my favorite. I've always loved in my life when the more normal and much more attractive people in the world tried to identify with me for God knows what reason. It's always amazingly amusing when they try to pull the, I liked Evil Dead too, man. First of all, it looks great. It looks real, not like a student film. The shot that springs to mind is the one boyfriend, I'm bad with names on the internet, and the pan over to the other guy waiting in bed. The colors of the room, planned or not, work really well. It took me a while to get how these stories were going to tie together, but they eventually did, and it works. You do well playing yourself, and that's not a backhanded compliment. Some directors do it well, Woody Allen, and some are impressively awful at it, Quentin Tarantino. The treatment of gay characters is pretty great, in my opinion. I just love that you give a character an entire scene before you out him, letting the audience think about their own stereotypes when it's revealed. I'm sure I'll have some actual criticism nitpicking as I process this, but I just wanted to say I finally got to watch this, and it was well worth the time. Good job, dude. Jeff. We talked about it in person a bit more, and reaffirmed that our tastes for naturalism, comedy, and character depictions were very similar. I appreciated that he picked up on things like not outing the character in the first scene. His sensibilities were encouraging, and I wasn't forgetting about that great script he wrote. Watching Sexually Frank was really where making having fun up there became a very serious consideration for me. 
As I said earlier, I didn't know if Frankie was serious or not. Were these outlandish scripts merely the collegiate version of the kid on the playground who would eat paste so you would notice him? I had no idea until I saw Sexually Frank. I watched the whole thing on my laptop as I continued to nurse a couple of beers alone in my apartment one Saturday night and thought it smacked of sincerity. Not just the writing, but the acting and the directing. There are silly things going on in this film. There are obscenities. There is, indeed, a by-the-letter-of-the-law sex offender who you're asked to sympathize with in that film. And it works. It all works for me, anyway. I walked away feeling good about a story that stresses the importance of friendship, the complexity of romance and domestic life, how important making art on any level can be to the artist, and the difficulty one can have when they don't share the same relationship philosophies with the rest of the world. And by this time, I had established friends and acquaintances in the program, and I counted Ingrid among them. I registered for yet another screenwriting class, and Ingrid was in this one. I wrote an intense drama about a pray-the-gay-away conversion therapist. It was a short, but to produce it, I would have to focus a lot of resources on the look. It was an intensely visual story, which was new ground for me, and I was being encouraged by once-professor and good friend-slash-cinematographer C.E. Courtney to do just that. So I focused on that movie, The Talking Cure, as my next film. After class, toward the end of the semester, Ingrid invited me and a few of the other students out for drinks, where I said these words to Ingrid. Maybe we can make that vibes movie sometime. I actually forgot I even said it. But the following week, she met me for lunch to go over details. I told her that if we were going to do this, I wanted it to be written and directed by Ingrid. I wanted to play a producer's role, and as much as I wanted to act as a facilitator in bringing her human and equipment resources, as well as creative consultancy, in order to make the film a reality. I told her that Kyle Gage would shoot it, John Hunt would do sound, and I would cast a few of our standbys. I walked her through how to find additional casts and locations. When it came to legwork, she was awesome and dedicated, going to locations personally, collecting props, arranging auditions, etc. At this stage, I was really just a sounding board who repointed her when I thought she was moving in the wrong direction, but otherwise, hands off. Then day one of shooting began. It was a bar scene. Should have been easy, just a few gals sitting around a table doing some dialogue. We cast Kyle's brother as a sleazy guy who comes over and hassles them. Working with a familiar face made Kyle and me a little more comfortable, and we had the entire space to ourselves. When I got to the location, I saw Ingrid in working clothes, with a tight braid, working quietly with a friend to set up lights and props. What she wasn't doing was keeping the actors laughing, talking, running lines, and directing the crew to be where they needed to be. She could have easily been mistaken for just a quiet crew member. For this reason, the energy was low. The funny scene we were about to shoot was not going to be helped by the stoic and quiet atmosphere in that bar but I wasn't about to jump in. I didn't want to be accused of taking over, especially in the first moments, and I committed to playing a supervisory role, not an operational role. So Nina and I chilled in the corner, really just waiting to help in the event of a disaster. I identified the first disaster. How did I describe Ingrid's pitch in class? Comically noncommittal? Yeah, that's how she directed actors in the cinematographer. Kyle, by his very nature, is already a snarky guy, and is subject to large spikes and deep drops in energy. And when he smells that there isn't strong, loud, clear leadership, especially for a time-sensitive project, his brother only had a few hours to shoot, he goes into jerk mode. Sometimes this comes in the form of a biting or sarcastic remark right in front of everyone, or it comes in the form of making his own decisions, filling in the gaps of direction that are missing. We have a joke on set, is Kyle going to have to blank? Because he often thinks that he has to take control of a situation for it to be done proficiently, or at all. It's not as big of a problem when I'm directing, because I normally direct to his standards, and when he's aggressive, I try not to take it personally. Kyle and Ingrid working together, one-on-one, -on -one, was missing that critical social conditioning. 
And aside from Kyle Gage. There's one thing 99.9% of people crave. Someone else calling the shots. I can't stress enough how important this is for literally any creative endeavor involving more than just yourself. If you want to make a movie, start by learning either how to be in charge or make friends with someone who doesn't mind being in charge for you. I'm a person who is highly conscious of the who's in charge dynamic, and if there's ever a vacuum, I try to fill it myself or complain about how the ship is going to run aground. By my nature, I'm unable to just let things lie. This is a trait myself, Frankie, and many other creative by definition people share. It's an inability to let things fail when they are worthy of success. It's not so much that I feel like I have to explicitly take control of something to make sure it's done well, as Frankie outlined, but rather that someone is paying attention to the details that I see and what's not working at the moment. It's true, I agitate over these things. I sweat certain details, and I grow restless at how poorly they are often executed in the real world. It's often a question of priorities. The only thing I can really do about it on set is to acknowledge that sometimes I'm a bit too much of a stickler about them. But then again, everyone on set is a stickler about something. Toward the end of the bar scene, I jumped in to start speaking to the cast and crew more loudly and more affirmatively to communicate deliberate group activity. I parroted what Ingrid wanted, but just more loudly, the way an assistant director might on any other set. The bar scene came out choppy and the comedy was stilted. We didn't reshoot it, and it's the worst scene in the film. We still had a full day ahead after the bar, and Nina opted to go home. She had enough, which was the first sign I was involved with vibes in a capacity I wasn't comfortable with. I don't like making movies without my wife. It doesn't feel like home, and movie making should feel like home. John, Kyle, and I had just shot Sexually Frank and were pretty simpatico. Our internal clocks were synced. We knew when things were taking too long, by our standards, when the scene wasn't working, and when it was. This was Ingrid's first narrative project, and she had a style altogether different. We wanted to be wrapped by 8pm, but too much leisurely pizza eating caused us to run into 10pm. We argued about how big a deal that really was. Is 10pm really all that different from 8pm? But ultimately, I can't fault someone for having a different pace than me. And aside from John Hunt. I can vividly recall this day of shooting. After having a lot of fun working on Sexually Frank, I was excited to be back in it. And I was also excited that Frankie was taking things in a new direction by enabling other people to make their films. I remember all the hustle and bustle in that dark basement bar as I tromped around on autopilot, taping mics to people and asking them to speak and then be quiet, and then sitting idle and waiting for the magic to start. I was very used to how Frankie ran a shoot, and I think that I was kind of expecting Ingrid to take this on too, plus or minus 15%. As we finally got going, however, we got off to a mushy, slow start, with an excessive focus on detail that barely showed up on screen. It was strange to me, seeing how things were plodding along and how much different the whole experience felt without a strong lead. Audio is simple enough that you don't need much direction usually, besides miking the right people and pressing record at the right time, but I could see Kyle and Frankie struggle with the way things were going. During Abo the Hue Monkey, I remember there was a running joke about Frankie's directing consisting of faster, slower, and no flubs this time. Even providing that level of clarity to the actors would have been a step up. I remember on that first day thinking that this will probably make Frankie not want to take on another project like this and being disappointed because of that. Her inexperience, however, caused some time-wasting debate. My personal favorite was when we had a character entering a room at the beginning of a scene. The character is about to leave the house, we have her getting her pocketbook in the first room, and then entering the room of the scene. Kyle and I wanted the room from which she was entering to have the light off, to create some depth in the frame. Ingrid insisted that it didn't make sense that she would exit a dark room. Perhaps she can turn the light off on the way through? Perhaps it can be dimly lit? 
Kyle and I were frustrated as we debated this insignificant detail. That's what experience affords you. When shooting a film, the only thing that really matters is what shows up on screen. Anything outside that frame is incidental. The entire art form and business of filmmaking is predicated on that concept. Some things matter and some things don't. And it occurred to me that time and several other times across the weekends we shot, this was a dumb idea. Not because Ingrid was inexperienced or because we disagreed with her or because our visions were colliding, but because I sought to hand someone a template for the way Frankie makes movies. The way I make movies is natural to me, but watching someone else try to do things the Frankie way showed me how proprietary my process is. For example, I shoot to edit. It's one way we save so much money and time. I've spent many hours behind an editing bay and have become good at mentally editing while shooting. I ultimately edited Vibes, which I think helps, and, and realistically, it turned out to be a cute movie. I met some talented new actors, enjoyed much of the shoot, and it screened shockingly well at the Cinekink Film Festival 13, and at an MFA colloquium. It was also Kyle's first outing as sole cinematographer, and personality collisions aside, he did a great job. Ingrid went on to make a Frankie List short with similar comedy, and I hope that Vibes was an amazing hands-on learning opportunity. But I found myself personally unfulfilled by the experience, because I meant for it to be more giving than it turned out to be. It didn't sour me on collaborating more closely with other filmmakers, but it did sour me on producing. Vibes proved that in order to produce my films the way I needed them produced, I have to be the director and editor, at minimum. We would see if I needed to be the writer. Jeff's script still picked at my skull, but I had every intention of making the Pray the Gay Away short. I kept meaning to revisit the script and fix some of the ham-fisted and embarrassing drama from the first pass, but the motivation was missing. It was April 2012, and my class would graduate the following month. To be a good doobie, I started attending thesis defenses, and one was Jeff's. His thesis turned out not to be the Lloyd Kaufman documentary, but an experimental film-slash-parody of 1980s business training videos. We caught one another for a moment afterward, and I mentioned that he or we should make his script into a feature someday. This inspired an exchange of heavy, prompt, and verbose email exchanges that haven't stopped to this day. I was cautious, because this was shaping up like vibes. I make an offhanded comment, the person becomes excited, and then I'm committed to something I'm not 100% about. But a few emails and a dinner later, and I could see I wanted to make a movie with this dude. But I made myself clear about one thing. I have to be the director. Practically speaking, I can't make the movie if I don't direct. And that, that's really what I want to get out of this. I want to tell a story I didn't write. But this story about a musician is mine and, and lots of people's story. It's about all artists. I just don't know anything about music and I could never write it myself. I would write a movie about making movies if I wrote it myself. So I want to make your movie, which will be my movie. Cool. And aside from Jeff Torelli. And I meant it. I knew there was no way I was going to make this script. It was too much for me. I was already working on two movies, working full-time and going to school full-time. I also trusted Frankie. More importantly, I think anytime you're super close to the material, it pays to have someone else take a stab at it. Too many scripts that never get produced, in my opinion, are way too autobiographical. It's really hard to see the picture when you're in the frame, and details that seem important to you because you're basing them off of real life can mean absolutely nothing to a viewer and contribute nothing to the narrative. Which is what you're writing. Writing based more than a little bit on personal experiences are a very tricky minefield to navigate. I knew with someone whose basic abilities and brain I trusted, we could weed out all the things I may have been attached to, but weren't contributing to a universal story about art. There are too many directly personal scripts out there, if you ask me. I think your own experiences are a good place to start, but the moment you start treating it like an autobiography, the more likely you're going to end up with something that no one but you and the people you're writing about are going to care about. 
For most of us, our lives just aren't that interesting. But basing scenes on certain specific experiences will absolutely help you to get some of the details very right.